because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Uh, well, President Biden has recently announced that he is using a certain what's called social cost of carbon, which is an idea that I think is a very uh, bad idea, but is an idea that's not very well understood. So uh, I wanted to bring on somebody who understands this well and has written about it so that we could uh, talk about it. And so I could also share some of my ideas and get them uh, vetted by a real economist on these issues. So I'm going to bring in uh, David Kreutzer, who is senior economist at the Inter uh, Institute for Energy Research, uh, a longtime economist. He's been on the show several years ago, uh, but it's it's been a while. So it's good to have him Hi. back. Uh, David, welcome back to Power Hour. Oh, thanks for having me back on. Really appreciate the work you do. Oh, well, uh, likewise. Okay. So let's, let's uh, well, actually, let's jump right in with Tell us what exactly the Biden administration announced recently. Yeah, well, the, the Biden administration uh, announced that they want to uh, reevaluate uh, re something called the social cost of carbon. Uh, that had originally been an Obama administration item. Um, they, they, they brought in a bunch of people to come up with a number. It wasn't high enough, so they had them rework it. Uh, the, the Trump, uh, when Trump came in, you know, you know, we advised, we said, look, this thing has so many uncertainties. It can go from you know, a huge negative number to a huge positive number. And, uh, you know, it, it's just useless right now uh, for, for use. And so he pretty much got rid of it. So they're bringing that back. And they said uh, first, second day or whatever, first week in office that he wants to have a working number within 30 days and then reevaluate it uh, over the next year. And big surprise that turns out there were a bunch of people that had numbers ready. And so they jumped in with new, somewhat higher numbers and other people saying, well, you know, we, we actually need to make the numbers gargantuan. So that's, that's where we are. They wanna use this number to uh, guide, as they say, put that in quotation marks, regulation. And it would also be the benchmark for any carbon tax that they would propose. Gotcha. Okay, let's start off with this name, uh, social cost of carbon. Because, you know, my, right. my thesis is that <laughs> carbon-based energy is basically the best thing that's ever happened uh, right. to the world. So, you know, one would think of it as, well, if you're going to talk about social, this is the greatest social benefit in human history. So one point you've made to me privately that I don't hear much is that even on the terms of the catastrophists, social cost of carbon isn't the right term. So how do you, what, yeah, what exactly the, is this and how yeah, should it be yeah, described? The e economists for at least a century have been making a living looking for something called externalities, either external costs or external benefits. And um, <clears throat> what that is, is you look for some spillover effect. And you say, well, the market's not handling that. It's handling everything else, but it's not handling these spillover effects, you know, some sort of pollution. Uh, and therefore we need to modify the market. And usually what they come up with if you're an economist is either a tax or a subsidy that will take care of that little bit that the market's missing. Now, when we look at carbon, we look at fossil fuels, um, you know, the private, what they call the economists call the private benefit, as you mentioned, they're huge, all right? They give us a standard of living that we couldn't possibly have without them. Um, <clears throat> and so the economists are saying, okay, yeah, 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 we get that, but it's off a teeny bit here. And so we're going to go look and see how much, that, how much it's off and propose a tax to fix it. So it really should be the external cost of carbon, actually it should be the external cost of carbon dioxide. Um, and of course, they don't look too hard for external benefits. And we, we've seen 
plenty of those in the, in, especially in the form of greening. The world has simply gotten greener because of CO2, primarily as a, um, as a, as a fertilizer for plants. It makes, a, it makes photosynthesis so much more efficient to have higher levels of CO2. But also uh, the studies are pretty clear that the warmer world is a greener world. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's kind of the most obvious thing about this is, is the, on this externality kind of framework, which I want to challenge in a second, is yeah. that, okay, well, there's enormous, I mean, and, and it is really serious, like there's an enormous benefit to having more plant food in the atmosphere. And yes. it's crazy that the world just doesn't, I think it's, it's a Agreed. lot of this goes down to philosophy. I think it's just the philosophy that it's wrong for us to impact things. Yeah. So we can't see <laughs> that there's this massively positive impact and also yeah. warming is very desirable throughout history. And I think most people would say the warming tends to occur more in the places where you'd want it, like toward the yes. poles and at night and in winter. So I, yeah. my whole view is that it's an anti-human impact morality that's that's driving this. And this, this relates to, I think economics, like economics is not just its own independent thing apart from philosophy. Like if you yeah. think about what's the goal, and I'll stop ranting in a second, but if you think no, about no, like, go ahead. What, what's the implicit philosophy of all this externality stuff. It's the philosophy called utilitarianism. And it's basically saying, well, the greatest good for the greatest number and the conception of the market in this. So the, on, on a more individualistic framework, a market is just the interactions of free people who want to act voluntarily to mutual benefit. It's right. not something anyone has a right to say, oh, I think everyone should benefit more so I get to control your life. Or I think yeah. Alex is a jerk. And if he got killed, that would make everybody happier so therefore the economist kings get to order Alex or Socrates put to death, right? So it's, it's coming on this immoral <laughs> framework of yeah. utilitarianism. I think that's part of it. But also if you look at even the, in part because the, the market is not, prices in the market are not utilitarian measures. And, this, and I really wanna ask you about this because there's this crazy idea that somehow, you know, the private benefit based on these prices somehow measures benefit, but I'll just give an obvious example. Like if I buy, you know, oil, like if I buy oil mm -hmm. and that oil is a helicopter that saved my life. And let's say I make a million dollars across my lifetime, that helicopter was worth $500,000 to me. That oil, right. was worth. Yeah, 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 yeah. So would you agree that the market prices do not, are not measures of utility? They're related to utility as in that's we'll only, we'll only pay as much yeah. as something is worth, but most of the time we get consumer surplus, which is far more. Right, right. And even in the bland world of neoclassical economics with those curves that we bored everybody with, you know, we're teaching economics, um, you know, they would point out that we're looking at the marginal, you know, value, you know, whether you want to call it marginal utility. And the, the famous case is water. You know, what's the price of water? It's almost nothing. You know, what's the what's the total value of water? It's infinity, you know. Um, and so but but I think you go to something even even beyond that, that there it's it's not just this smooth thing with with, uh, you know, lines intersecting and curves being tangent and, and so on. You know, the real world effects of of energy, you know, wh where do you put the marginal value on the ambulance that saves umpteen lives, you know, like your helicopter? So so they miss that. But they're trying to say, okay, even with this market, you know, we're going to say, you know, things are a little bit off. We're going to jigger it around. And one of the things I'm, I, I, part of what you said brought up um, <clears throat> is that, you know, we have markets for the private benefits. We don't usually, and not in this case, we don't have markets for the external benefits or the external costs. 
Now we, we, and that's where they come in using all this arbitrary measure to try to figure out what would it be and bless them for trying, I guess. But we, you know, we, we, we don't have a, a market for that's, that's explicitly said so for warmth. But, you know, I've tried to look into it. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear people would rather be on average warmer than they are now. Well, you we know. do have a market for warmth. I mean, that's why people live in California. Right, right, right. No, yeah, no, what I'm saying is it's I'm called trying the, to... the world. Yeah, it's called the world. No, no, we, 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 right, we, we, excuse me. Yeah, we do have a market for it, but I can't find the price. And it's, and I'm really stunned that people haven't really looked at that. There'd be an obvious thing to do research on. You know, if you're talking about looking at the cost benefit analysis for CO2 and the warming, well, how much benefit does it give to all the people who on average would rather live in a slightly warmer place? And there's no number on that. I spent, I spent a couple of days last week trying to find it and was stunned. I would have thought that real estate markets or, you know, some sort of, there, there are a couple of articles out there that get to it as a, as a sort of a side case. Uh, but in any event, yes. So we, we don't see that, which is in my mind, this illustrates one of the huge problems with even, even in theory, looking at the social costs of carbon. And that is there's researcher bias. And if you start out thinking, okay, carbon dioxide is bad, you're gonna start putting in your model estimates of all the bad things it does. You're not gonna naturally look for all the good things. You may to force yourself to try to say, well, there's something good, I guess, let me see, and throw it in. But you know, it's really easy to not find things you don't wanna find. And so that's, to me, that's the, one of the biggest problems of the social cost of carbon uh, you know, exercise that we're going through is we don't look for the benefits. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I want to come back to that in a minute. But I, I think the example of water is great. So when people are explaining like the, you know, marginal utility, they'll often use, at least the Austrians will use like water and diamonds. Right, right, like, right. Why right. do diamonds cost more than water? But I think it's in, so there are reasons why on a market, certainly diamonds uh, cost a lot more than water, but it has to do with the cost of, the main thing is the cost of producing it. It's like, we know how to produce water at very low cost, but it's important that the actual value of, like the value of water to an individual is greater than the value of diamonds to an individual. Like if they had to choose, right, they right. would choose water. So I just really want to rebel against this. I think that people have this idea that the market prices are reflecting utility, like absolute utility yeah. to the individual. Whereas in reality, no, they're reflecting the supply and demand and demand is related to utility. But yeah. again, it's just limited by right. utility. Yeah, what we would say is, you know, what, what would you do with one more gallon of water? Well, you know, uh, I'm already hosing off the sidewalk in the summer. And, you know, so the, that the next gallon that I would have this year has very little, you know, utility to me. And if you cut off one gallon, I probably wouldn't notice it. You know, it's not, I mean, if you cut off the, but, the gallon I'm gonna drink today, sure what would I do with one more? Well, I don't like diamonds too much, but you know, something like that, you know, if you gave me one more, you know, I don't know, uh, something I do like that's valuable. Gold yeah, coin, I, mean, I, I don't and, know. And yeah. if, but, but okay. This, I just want to make one more yeah, philosophical yeah, sure. point about this. Yeah. Like if you look globally, so if you're using sort of Alex's, again, I'm not a utilitarian, but if you, right. if you are being utilitarian, which is the premise of all of this, the implication would be you should subsidize the hell out of water around the world because think about it like <laughs> well, everyone's focused yeah. on co2 yeah. and people don't have freaking clean water and and so but what this shows is this whole it's it's like a total fraud that this is actually right. based on optimal value and it's it's ignoring what is actually valuable and the fact that the prices we pay do not reflect the full value and in, in, in general the more basic the thing 
the more yeah. of an actual value surplus right. there is. So the like water, oil, mm-hmm. like those are the things we would pay, like life-saving drugs. Like yeah. those are the things we would pay as much as we could. And things like diamonds and this other stuff uh, would would go by the wayside in terms of right. its absolute value right. to us. Right, right. Yeah. No, you know, let, let me, let me, you know, you talk about, you know, we, we need to get clean water. And there are some people trying to push and drill wells where, where they don't have it and bless them for doing that. But let, let's bring up how absurd it is, this focus in almost a monomaniacal obsession with carbon dioxide. The World Bank and other lending agencies, international you know, development agencies have prohibited financing carbon, excuse me, coal power plants. Now, in a lot of the developing world where they don't have natural gas and they don't have natural gas distribution systems, um, coal would be like the cheapest way for them to get electrified, to bring electricity into their house. So many of them don't have it in these very poor countries. They've ruled that out. All right. They said, no, we're not going to do that. You know, they, they may put up some solar panels and so on. But one of the, the this is the World Bank had it on the front page of their energy section. This was maybe six years ago. Um, the Clean Cook Stove Initiative. I don't know if you're familiar with that. People went around. Mm-hmm. They said, well, in these very poor countries, people are cooking inside their house. They're using wood and coal and dung and whatever else. And it's smoky in the house. And that's not so good for their health. Um, Instead of saying, well, let's build a coal-fired power plant and have them have electric hot plates so there's zero smoke inside their house, um, they came up with this development for a, you know, a modern cook stove that burned half as much dung. And it was like, how absurd could you get? You know, you could help these people so much more with a coal-fired power plant that you have banned, and instead you're doing this feel-good by not really helping them much with this cook stove. Um, and in fact, some economists looked at the impact and they found that, that even those places that got the cook stoves had zero benefits from them. <laughs> they, they quit using them after a couple of years. They went and they looked at what happened to health effects and so on. They had a, they had a really good model. There were some people that got the stoves and some people that wanted them but didn't get them. And they compared the two groups. Bingo, nothing different, no difference. So the clean cook stove initiative was not only a pathetic attempt, it was a no impact attempt whatsoever. Yet these groups will not allow modern coal-fired power plants, and the modern coal-fired power plant is so much cleaner than what we had 50 years ago. All those pictures of smoky Pittsburgh, you don't have smoky Pittsburgh anymore. Of course, they're not making so much steel, um, but they, we've, we've cleaned it up, you know, and it, it would be so much better for those countries to have, you know, coal-fired power with lights and stove, electric stoves, than to have, you know, burning sticks and whatever. But. So I think that's a, that's an illustration of so my first kind of big point that I'm harping on is that you can call it the social benefit. I would really call it right. the human benefit right. of energy is far, far, far greater than the price paid for energy. So you cannot treat the price paid for energy as the value of energy. And so this is a case like how much is it worth to the lives of people yeah. to have cooking that actually works that they right. can afford. You don't have to gather all this dung all day. You're not getting all these fumes. Like that is an enormous value. And, and I think a key thing is they don't have an, there's not a, an alternative for them that's cost effective. So you, you, what does it mean right. to say like this idea? Oh, well, like we'll pass a carbon tax and that'll somehow, no, if you, the, <laughs> if you, anything you do to prevent them from using this is just an enormous disvalue to their life. Yet all these economist kings are just ignoring yes this reality because yeah, they don't re- they don't understand the real th- their whole system 
because of the bias and because they're equating like marginal utility with absolute yeah. utility, they are, they're just denying this huge benefit that, that is then going to kill a bunch of people. Right. Now, let me, let me give you another anecdote at the risk of sort of anecdoting you to death. No, there, I don't was, there, was, there was a case in India where there was this village that didn't have electricity and they've been promised electricity. So how are they coming in? Well, you know, Hey, modern world, they're giving them solar panels. Now, of course, solar panels don't work so well at nighttime and, you know, you can't turn them up and down and whatever else. And the, the village actually revolted and said, we want real electricity. Yeah, that was the Darnai. I think the Darnai okay, example, gonna, that long yeah. work talk. I learned about it from him. I don't know yeah. where you learned about it. Yeah, but that's I'm actually using that in my new book because it is it's a, and then they finally connected them to the coal grid. But the, the point I made, if yeah. it was up to these organizations, there wouldn't be a coal grid. Right. to connect to. And I consider that's like an almost infinite destruction. And the idea that economists yeah. are acting like preventing this is a benefit is just to me a total abdication of the purpose of the field. Yes. No, no, I, I agree 100%. And economists are famous for working their little models and thinking they're going to be implemented the way they drew them up on the blackboard. You know, so that, you know, here we, we found this slight error and, you know, the numbers they're coming up with were like, you know, seven, eight, 10, $15 a ton 10 years ago. They didn't, didn't, that didn't really argue for doing too much, which is what we would expect because the, you know, the, the value of oil and coal and natural gas is so huge compared to this external cost that it's, it, you know, we should probably ignore it given the fact that the government's not going to be able to implement, you know, this small carbon tax, but the, it, it got, it's been twisted. It's like, it's, it's as though carbon-based fuels are like smoking cigarettes. You know, the less is always better. You know, that they're, they're inherently evil. And so anything you do to, to reduce, you know, uh, fuel use is good, which is, as you pointed out, is just absurd. And the economists in their, in their ivory tower are not saying that, but that's how it gets translated once it gets put into D.C., yeah, so I, I want to I want to talk about that again in a minute. But one, so one more thing. So there's the, sort of my big criticism. One is just yeah. they're not recognizing the human benefit of right. fossil fuels that isn't captured in the price. But the other thing is that if you want to talk about positive externalities, so you mentioned there's the CO2 externality. But from my reading, at least of externalities, people will often talk about something like research and development as having a lot of positive externalities. Like, you know, you, you engage in this, re people engage in research and development and people benefit from that all over the place in a way that the research and development people aren't paid. Well, think of something like the coal and like how the coal industry and the oil industry and the gas industry by freeing up huge amounts of human time right. made possible modern research and development. And, and if you look forward, how much, every minute of time you free up, you know, that makes possible more innovation. I don't see people talking about those kinds of benefits. What do you, and that's, no, no, maybe no. that's a huge positive externality that, yeah. that isn't discussed. Yeah, no, I guess, you know, I, I don't, I, I agree hundred percent with these benefits and you can get, we can get tripped up whether they're external or, or private. And, um, but, you know, there, there's a huge amount of research that goes on in energy development. I mean, the, you know, the smart drilling with, a, you know, the horizontal drilling and, and the fracking and all of that. Um, you know, there's a lot of research and undoubtedly there's, there's spillovers from that. This notion that we should just pour piles of money into researching something that's in itself not useful, that we were going to get spillovers from all this research that will justify it, which we hear a lot. You know, you say, well, why, you know, why are we putting all this money into know this particular technology doesn't it? well you know but we get these spillover effects you know we got tang from from you know this going to the moon <laughs> you know um so we you know 
we should primarily focus on doing research where we expect the benefit to be at least worth the cost. That's, that's good. And we do see, but I think you're right. Your basic point that um, in, in addition to, you know, making locomotives move and to heating our house, you know, the energy use um, and it's, you know, the fact that we have it everywhere allows us to do things uh, way beyond what we thought. I mean, just what we're doing today, you know, was something we wouldn't have, have thought about 10 years ago, uh, certainly not, not 50 years ago. And so nobody in putting up the electric grid said, well, you know, we're going to have people be able to use video conferencing if we build this electric grid, but without it, we wouldn't have the video. Yeah. That's the, so that's the final, and, and I'll stop pushing on this point, but it has been a passion of mine for 10 years. Cause I, I hate how this issue is misrepresented by yeah. economists, but you take the internet, right. With, so I look back, I look back in the seventies and we have my anti-heroes like Paul Ehrlich and Amory Lovins <laughs> all say, you know, we use way too much electricity. Yeah. What do you need another electric toothbrush? Come on. Electricity is, is uh, we don't need electricity. And you think about like without fossil and they were talking about getting rid of fossil fuels back then yeah. in significant quantities. You think about without the fossil fuel industry, particularly the coal industry, if you think about electricity, there would be no modern internet. Now, when people, economists talk about private benefits, how the hell can you say, oh, somehow the value of the internet was paid for in the cost that the coal people, made. it was not paid to them. Right. And that's, that's like one or both of us could, like the internet could have extended one or of our lives even. Like one of us yeah. could be dead maybe without something that I'm the internet sure. made, made possible. So it's just like this idea that, oh, the price reflects all the benefits. And then we get to come and we right, get right, to, right, right. and then we get to say, oh, there's something negative that wasn't in the price. So then we're going to stop you from using this thing that yes. saved your life. This just yeah. seems completely it's, corrupt to me. It saved a little bit too much of your life. We need, we need, <laughs> we need to save like just 98% of your life, not the whole thing. Yeah. It, no, I agree with you that they, that they get so caught up in the cleverness of their ideas and the, you know, the, 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 actually, even though they're complicated computer models, it's, it's much simpler than reality. Um, and, and they miss all these sorts of things. Right. So let's talk then about, um, what, what is going into these social costs or external, like what actually goes into these calculations? Yeah. And, and I'll call, I, even though it's wrong, we can call it the social cost of carbon. That's what everybody okay. else calls it. Well, so first of all, you have to have the climate models predicting what's going to happen to temperature, you know, 80 years from now, 100 years from now, and even 300 years from now, believe it or not. And some of them go a thousand years or more down the road. I mean, that's how absurd it is, you know, and um, so you need to be able to say, okay, first of all, how much CO2 are we going to be putting into the atmosphere? All right. That's actually not a, a, an easy question to answer, as you probably understand. Um, there's something called representative concentration pathway, RCP, that the IPCC models use. And the most exaggerated of them all is 8.5. And of course, that's the one they all use. That's the one that they're using for Biden's new uh, uh, social cost of carbon. And it, it, it's a, it assumes that everybody that's now using gas switches back to coal and uses ever more amounts of coal and on and on and on. So it's just, it's, the most unrealistic assumption set of assumptions possible. So you plug that in and then you have to say, well, how sensitive is the, the you know, average global temperature, however you want to measure that, to increases in CO2 concentrations? That's not settled. And in fact, most of the estimates done for most of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Models 
were done from models themselves. Um, and people have looked at it, empirical estimates of it have come up with much lower numbers. So instead of saying doubling CO2 leads to a three, four, five, 10 degree increase in temperature, um, it looks like it's going to be, you know, maybe one to one and a half degrees centigrade for a doubling, which is what sort of where we're headed by the end of this century. Um, you know, that's, that's not a huge deal. All right. Uh, you know, we've, we've seen way more warming than that in the past. So you take that. So they're going to get much higher numbers than reality. Too high a number for the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere over the next couple of centuries. Too high a sensitivity of the world temperature to the CO2. And then you have to look at, well, how much will that higher temperature affect sea level? How much will higher sea level affect erosion and storms and blah, 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 blah? How much will the higher temperature affect agricultural productivity, which they get pretty much wrong um, because they look at short-term temperature changes, predicting you know, longer term when you would have time to adapt um, and all sorts of things. So it's, it's, not, it's not simple. And they, they come up with uh, the, these numbers that I think are probably more likely to be exaggerated than underestimated, but let's, let's let them have that. <laughs> the big kicker is, and we could talk for the oh, rest wait, of the on. hour. Before, well, well, yeah, yeah, I we want to talk about that. discount rate in a minute. Yeah, okay, but, good. Which I assume is what you're getting to. Yeah. Well, so let me just give my own, my own view of these three. So I think the most plausible one that you could honestly try to predict is concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere under different scenarios. Not that it's easy or not that you can do right, right, accuracy, right. but if you take like specific knowledge of what's going to happen to the, and I want to stress specific, of what's going to happen to the global climate system that can tell you anything about anywhere specific on the globe. We have basically no knowledge right. of that. So, cause even, <laughs> I mean, even the, no, it's important. Like, yeah. I don't think there's any, I mean, there's no confidence in being able to, real confidence in being able to predict global average temperatures. That's why if you look at the IPCC, right. their sensitivity estimate from a doubling of CO2 ranges from 1.5 to 4.5, which basically means we have no idea what the hell is going to yeah. happen. So, and they don't admit that, but even if you knew one of those, you don't know what's going to happen in a specific, like what's going to happen in Chicago and what's going to happen in here and what's right, going to happen right, in right. there. And then like the knowledge of what that's going to do to different storm patterns. And like, are you going to get more? Hurricane? I mean, I would just say that. So I want to just make clear, yeah. there are a lot of things we don't know. And, right. but it's dishonest to act like we know them. And even you could say like, we're confident they're going to get worse, which I would right. question. But so it's just, this thing is basically, there's very little ability to predict warming impact and then other climate impacts. And then the adaptation one, or what I would call the mastery, I think that's more predictable, but only in the general sense that it's very hard to imagine something we can't adapt to. And that's what yes. history is showing us. I mean, we have a wealthy you know, machine labor, as I call it, machine labor civilization, climate related deaths are down 98% over the past century. Like it's, I've been trying for my new book to think about scenarios that would actually be a problem for human beings. And like beyond multi-foot a decade sea level rises, it's very hard to think of anything that would actually be a problem over a time scale of 80 or 100 years. So yeah, my I, sense of it is, yes. the, and I just want to link this to one thing, you mentioned that people are going into this not like just out of idle curiosity, but with a bias. And a lot of this is to justify climate policy, restricting fossil fuels. So of course, the bias is going to be overestimate the climate impacts, underestimate our adaptive uh, abilities. 
And then that's where you get, and then you're going to get your mag magical number. Would you? I know. I, I, I agree with that a hundred percent. And it's, it's almost comical. There was a study that came out oh, when I first came up here, you know, uh, maybe 2009, 10 called the cost of doing nothing. And that got huge press. It was saying, well, if we don't do anything, you know, about climate here is going to be the cost <laughs> on the economy. And, you know, they, they, you looked at real estate damage on the coast. It, literally, they assumed nobody would adapt, that the sea, you know, sea level would rise. And they had a big sea level rise. I can't remember if it was 10 feet or something like that. And it was like people would go out at low tide to pour the foundations of their buildings. It, it was almost that stupid. Um, so, and, and so they, they would look at that and they say, here's the damage that was done. And of course, it's the damage that's done to an economy that's so much richer because we've used all this energy. And the, the analogy I make is like saying, well, you know, I spend $300 commuting to work each month. If I quit working, I'll have $300 more a month to spend. You know, you can't, you can't say we're, we're going to have, you know, this damage done to the economy by the thing that actually makes the economy go and somehow think you can get rid of it. Now you can talk about moderating it, but they didn't. They didn't look at say, well, here's how much of that damage we could save with this policy that costs this much. They simply said, here's how much damage is gonna be. And the implication was we should do at least that much to stop it or even more. It was, it was absurd, but so you're right. You get caught up in this, uh, the, the, these games that they play of looking at what the costs are gonna be. They don't know them and they don't look at adaptation. You know, they, well, they, excuse me, I say Richard Tolls clearly does, and they, some of them may, but I think they've underestimated our, our creative ability. So one more aspect before we get to, uh, to discount rate, which I know is the thing you really love to hammer is, <laughs> how, I mean, part of any of these estimates is what is your view of the state of alternatives, right? I mean, am I, like, ha, yes. what, because you're mentioning that the economy is based on fossil fuels, which it is. What if there are no real substitutes? And I would say there are certainly no substitutes when you've criminalized nuclear uh, for the indefinite future. Yeah. So like we don't have a way of eliminating CO2 and having substantial amounts of energy. It just doesn't exist in the world given today's uh, situation. Yes. So how do they, when they're talking about like, oh, here's a severe, uh, you know, here's like a, I mean, some of them will show like, oh yeah, this carbon tax, like Nordhouse will show this carbon tax would be too much, but how are they modeling <laughs> alternatives? Because my sense is they're dramatically overestimating the cost effectiveness of alternatives, particularly given that the greens are in charge of energy and that they'll restrict everything, including the green alternatives. Yeah, the most of the economists and are, are, are thinking marginal, a little bit less here and a little bit less there, and maybe a little bit more solar here, I guess. Um, you know, Nordhaus, if you look at his projections out to 2100, which he doesn't do anymore, he did it in, his, in a paper back in 2013, um, you know, the lines are over top of each other. His optimal, you know, uh, GDP path, if you, if you use the exact right set of carbon taxes versus the um, not doing anything at all versus doing too much, you know, doing nothing at all was within like 4% of being six times richer in 80 years. So, um, the, this, this notion that we, we need to get rid of everything. I don't think you would get that. Well, I don't know. He's kind of kowtowing to them, but in any event, um, you, you're right. They're assuming that we will come up with ways to integrate 80, 90% solar into our energy grid and that we will come up with cost-effective storage to do that. I mean, that, that's the only way you can read this 
Could it happen? Yeah, hey, we're, we're really creative. Um, do you want to bet everything on that particular solution being the best one? No, absolutely not. Um, so that's, you know, to me, that, that's a huge problem. That's a problem with this, you know, similar electric car mandate. You know, the, the California, everybody's going to mandate these electric cars. You know, electric cars may end up being the thing. <laughs> But if you're going to mandate them, you have to be 100% sure that they're going to be the thing, that you're going to be able to get the lithium, you're going to be able to get the cobalt, you're going to be able to beef up the, the, the electric grid to absorb all this new demand. And they're not. You know, they're, so it, it goes, it's a similar sort of notion that, well, we will assume if we put pressure here, you know, people are creative there. You know, for some reason, they're not creative like you and I think they are to adapt to climate exactly. change. But they're going to be infinitely creative in coming up with new energy sources. Yeah, that's such an interesting, I mean, that could be a whole subject, just how this, <laughs> this assumption of like omnipotent creativity applies to making the arbitrary wishes of the right, eco right, dictators right. happen, <laughs> yeah. but it cannot handle uh, ch changes in climate conditions over a hundred years. Yes. Yeah, you know, from sort of right at the advent of agriculture, you know, 5,000 years ago, um, we were coming out of the, the, the last ice age and look, there, there were multiple centuries where sea level rose by more than five feet. But these are people that had like zero technology to adapt to anything. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there was already pressure on who got the choicest hunting ground and, and so on. Um, now, five feet of sea level rise is going to be very costly in terms of, you know, the stuff we have along the coast and whatnot. Um, but it's not existential. You know, and again, we're talking about you know, people 80 years from now that are going to be probably at least in the U.S. four times richer, 150 years from now, who knows, 10 whatever times richer. Well, if, so, if we, you know, if we don't restrict fossil fuels, I mean, exactly, they're basically exactly. telling us to adopt Venezuela's, I mean, like, yeah. is Venezuela richer than it was 20 years ago? No, it is. <laughs> so there's this assumption of all, so it's interesting to look into these things, but I just think that assumption about the actual viability of the alternatives that are allowed to function and how yes. they're allowed to function and how they're implemented, namely by government dictate. Right. Like we're just getting mild previews with California and with Texas. Like are any of these people modeling, hey, what happens when you're so dependent, when you've defunded your reliables, you defund resiliency, you have a extremely low base load to accommodate as much wind as possible. Right. You need to quadruple your amount of, you know, your, your, your supply, wind goes out to lunch, solar, like what happens if, if by giving ourselves less control of electricity, we screw up and then we have this right. bucket like, oh, and it costs 50 billion, like is anyone factoring this in? I don't, yeah, no, no, I don't, I don't think, think so they are. I don't, no, I don't think they are either. And, and, and that, that's a, a great point. And it's, you know, I think there's this assumption and wrong one in my mind that if it isn't working out, then we'll, we'll fix it. We'll go back a little bit to, to you know, the fossil fuels. Um, I, I, I don't have that confidence whatsoever. We see so often when a policy is failing, they blame something else and double down on the failed policy. You know, back um, when I was writing my dissertation back in the 70s on OPEC and energy and so on, um, you know, I went and looked, it was, it was, you know, I went back and looked, I, was, you know, I lived through that, but I'm writing, I'm looking back like a, a, a decade. And what did people blame the, we had waiting lines for gasoline. You've probably heard the stories. Um, there, were, there were actual shortages because we had price controls in effect. Uh, price controls only on petroleum in the US, not worldwide. There was a, it was totally bizarre. And because we had these ceilings and the demand because of inflation and so on was going and growing economy was going up, we had 
people wanting to buy more gasoline than the suppliers were willing to supply in the US at a given time. It is classic case of shortages due to price controls. You know, you, every economist can tell you what's gonna happen. The surveys, Gallup, I went back and looked at Gallup surveys. People didn't blame OPEC for the problem. They didn't blame price controls. They blamed the oil companies and to fix it. And there was a slight majority that wanted to actually issue ration coupons for gasoline. So in my mind, that was a crystal clear case of what economists could see was the problem. And the people, you know, saw something else as the problem. And we, we, you see that in Venezuela. You know, what, what's, what's the problem? It's this horrible socialist dictatorship. And what do they say the problem is? It's America's boycott. And so we need to double down and it just gets worse and worse. And we, you know, that, that's, that's a concern to me that we, you're right. We have this, this grid stability, grid reliability that is critical. I mean, clearly people die from it when the electricity stops, you know, people that need to have their oxygen pump running, uh, all these sorts of things, which um, just get cold. This heartbreaking story of a kid that froze to death. Um, so we, you know, we, we, we're getting away from that and if it's not, if, if their, you know, magic storage technologies don't work and we have these regular blackouts, you know, rich people are going to be able to buy backup generators. All right. Assuming that you can get the fuel for them. Um, but most people are, are not going to be doing that. And it, we, I, I'm not sure that we will rectify it. So I, I'm really worried. It's not a, it's not a kind of what we would call in economics, a stable equilibrium. You can get away from it and it can collapse and you're, you know, um, Anything I can go on and on. I can tell. Yeah, no, that, that's no. that's a good point. But I would just want to stress, and the models they're they're not they're not accounting for this. So let's let's just. I just want to reiterate. So yeah. I think these models are are all these calculations are terrible because a they assume they owe. I mean, they assume they understand what's going to happen with climate in a relevant yeah. way, and they they're always biased. They they have every incentive to exaggerate it. They clearly underestimate adaptation slash mastery, and they clearly. Uh, they, they clearly overestimate the abilities of, of alternatives in reality to substitute at the levels. So we have all this. And so what they'll give us, and then we're going to talk about discount rate, sure. is like they'll say, you know, per ton of CO2. So they'll say something like, I think Biden is saying $51. But really, right. a lot of the more extreme people don't want $51 because that's something like 50 cents a gallon. Right. They want like, they'll say like, oh, it's $500. Right. Or five thousand dollars, but let's let's say it's it's fifty one dollars. There's still <laughs> this issue of what the discount rate. So what you know right. what is what is it worth to prevent X damage yeah. in the future? So explain. Well, that that, that fifty one dollars reflects supposedly. Okay, let me just to run it through again so people can see how's you know un, uh, how unsure this stuff is. We're saying if you for every ton of CO two emitted today. It will make the world a little warmer today, a little bit more warm the, day, uh, the year after that, and subsequent warming every year for maybe hundreds of years, some say thousands, but probably hundreds. And that additional warming is going to make sea level a little bit higher in 2021, a little bit higher yet in 2022, and so on up to 2100 and 2200 and 2300. So we're looking at all of these impacts of your CO2 ton that you emitted today for you know, three centuries down the road, every single year, three centuries down the road, what is the damage 
that that additional warming from the CO2 is going to do through sea level rise and whatever storms, though we're, of course, not observing any more storms from a higher temperature here. Um, but they make these estimates. So that's what they're doing. And they're saying, okay, when we have this big storm in 2100 or 2200, it's going to do this much damage to a much wealthier country. It'll be easier to do more damage because it's wealthier unless they've adapted better. Um, well, how much is that? How much should we pay to stop that damage in 300 years? And so that's where the discounting comes in. So they get the. the, the Are they actually using 300 years? So, yeah, yeah, 2300 was how far out they went for. Uh, excuse me. Okay, so that's uh, that's yeah, that's 300 years. They're going to 2300 for um, uh, for the the interagency working group back in 2010. They ran the integrated assessment models out to 2300 in order to find out what the damage were. I'm not joking. Okay. Um, so, you know, okay, go on. I mean, I just, just find yeah, that absurd that's... that you have laws today that are like, oh, what's going to happen in three. I mean, imagine somebody had done that today, like 300 years ago for today. Well, the, I didn't know the, anything you, about you what's going to happen. No, no, I, I, I agree 100%. The, the Stern Review, which wasn't one of the ones, but one of the modelers for the Stern Review was on the interagency working group's set of models. Uh, that was a famous you know, thing that came out talking about how much damage Columbia is going to be. They actually went out, uh, somebody pointed out that half of the damages that they're talking about incurring now and forever didn't actually occur until after the year 2800. So it's, I mean, they, yeah, no, and they think, they think they're being more clever or, or more serious by doing that. Okay, so you, we, we have this number, let's say it's a, uh, I, I just did some calculations looking back to the, the Civil War, but let's say we go out about 160 years, $100 worth of damage. How much should we pay today to fix that $100 worth of damage? How much should we pay to cut CO2 because we think it's gonna do that much damage in 160 years? Mm -hmm. Well, um, if you do it at, at 1%, you get something like 50 bucks. Do what, uh, 1%? I'm sorry, thank you, all right, the discount rate. So you use, this, the, the, use the net present value, it's a calculation. And it, it came up because businesses understand, for instance, if I'm going to invest a dollar today and I'm gonna get $10, you know, 50 years from now, is that a good deal? Well, it depends what other alternative investments could you make. And so you look at the interest rate that reflects those alternative investments. And you can say, okay, that I will discount at that alternative interest rate, which by the way, the, the, the stock market in the US for the past 200 years has averaged um, pre-tax over 7% real return adjusted for inflation over 7%. All right. And it's been it's been fairly constant, you know, the, mm -hmm. if you take a long enough time period, it's not like it all zoomed in at the end or all at the beginning. So if you take that 7% discount rate, it says something pretty reasonable. Um, 150 year benefit now, we, we probably shouldn't do too much. All right, they're going to be fabulously wealthy. Um, and if we invested at 7%, a, if we invested $20 at 7% for 160 years, you get 900,000. All right. So we don't want to do something that's going to get them a hundred dollar benefit 150 years from now. Okay. Um, so if you, if you discount at, at, at 1%, you get like $20. So it says, okay, I know there's these numbers that it's easy. I mean, it's not easy. I had to sit there and write them down. So I apologize to the people listening. If you use a discount rate of 1%, a hundred dollar damage, 160 years from now says, 
okay, we should be, we should spend up to $20 to avert that damage 160 years from now. All right, if we're using a 1% discount rate, all right. Um, but if you took that $20 again, and you invested it at, at, at 7%, that's where you get that $900,000. So which, what, which one really says you care more for the future? You're making an investment that gets them 100 bucks, or you're making one that gets them 900,000. The climate benefit is the $100 benefit. Investing anywhere else in the stock market, you know, cutting, cutting uh, you know, tax rates on investment, whatever, you know, that says if you did that for 160 years, you would have way, way more. And, and it's just mind boggling that the people doing this research say if you use a lower discount rate and justify a, a um, $20 expenditure that gets you $100 in 160 years, that means you care more about them than if you spent $20 and gave them 900,000. I mean, it's just absurd. So that's the discounting is really uh, kind of messy, but it's important. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a better term, a more accessible term than discount, yeah. right? Because it seems like from another perspective, they're totally underestimating the, the opportunity cost of, of the money. No, no, that's, no. Okay, that's a, better, maybe that's a better way of saying it. They're, they're underestimating the opportunity cost of what we, could, what we could do today to help them in 160 years. All right. So it's basically saying like, I'm going to give 20 or whatever the statistic was, but it's like, I'm going to give $20 to, uh, you know, to prevent this thing in the future. Like I'm investing $20 to get this $100 benefit versus getting $900,000. That's exactly what they're saying. They're saying, you know, um, this, this climate is so critical and this is where it comes on. It takes on almost religious overtones. It's like, okay, a hundred dollars worth of climate benefit is $100 worth of benefit. You know, it comes in different ways. And if you're saying, well, you're underestimating it, well, then give me the number you think it should be. That saying that we're gonna discount it, we're gonna bring it back to the present using 1% rate of return, which is what they're saying, when we know we're likely to get 7% or more is absurd. So is it, it, is it accurate to say they're ignoring or denying the opportunity cost? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. They frequent, yeah, and they say, and they say, well, that's not what we're. They say we're doing something different. We're we're trying to um, come up with how much we should weigh the future's benefit to our benefit, which is absurd. You know, that's you, you, that's not what they're doing. And if it is, they're doing it upside down. If we want to help the future, we want to make investments today that give them the biggest rate of return, not some arbitrary. <laughs> it's some like arbitrary it's like saying one. I want to help the future. Yeah. By prohibiting every good investment. Well, yeah, you, you can only put it in a, you can only store it under your mattress. Okay, what, 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 if, what if your investment advisor came to you and said, well, you love your grandchildren tremendously. I do, yes. Okay, so we're gonna go, the way the IPC, IPCC thinks is the, um, the, the more you love the future, the lower the rate of return you should get. So if you really love them, I have this investment portfolio that's going to have a 0% rate of return to show how much you love your grandchildren. You know, you would kick that person out of your house. You wouldn't listen to them again. But that's exactly what these social cost of carbonistas are saying when they say we need to use a lower discount rate if you love the future more, if you value them more. But it's, it's, it's totally backwards. You know, if we're in, a, in a world where we have alternative investments that are going to give us you know, more than that 1%, they probably going to get us, you know, if going by historical trends, you know, it's been, you know, been around 7%, um, you know, again, before tax, um, which is what we want in this case. 
um, yeah, we, we, we don't want to get them a crummy return. We want to get them a good return. And to say, well, that you're, you're undervaluing their benefit. No, you've, you've picked one specific case of an investment today and a benefit in the future. You're ignoring all these other ones. And that's what the discounting is supposed to do. It's supposed to say, no, this is relative to what else we could invest in. This, your climate benefit that you want is terrible. So, okay. so maybe it's like, you know, gosh, I had, a, I had a, a way of putting it that I liked for a second, yeah. but it's something like, you know, preventing these climate impacts is a terrible investment for your future and it's going to harm your future by precluding far better yeah, investments. Right. right. If, if we do this and it's, you know, right. It's sort of like, the, we're going to give you the clean cook stove instead of the electric grid and an electric frying pan. Um, the, the, it, in the only way their story makes sense, and none of them have thought this through, well, a couple have, Nordhaus has, um, is if you're saying, well, okay, if we really love the future, we're going to, and we think that we should, that the, what's fair is a 1% discount rate then we have to increase our savings rate so that we invest so much that the marginal return on investment goes down to 1%. And if you look at how much saving we would have to do for that, it would, it's huge. And we've certainly, um, you know, most of our tax system discourages saving, you know, in so many ways. Uh, you know, if you, if you go, one way I like to look at it is go back 160 years, which is what I'm writing this paper on. Um, you know, the, the average productive production worker uh, adjusted for inflation, his, his hourly wage was about $2.60, okay, $2.40, excuse me. Um, a modern production worker, and I don't know if that's the wage, that's the cost per hour, including benefits, is 32, all right? Uh, so there's this, there's this huge difference um, in, in how much, you know, the, the people today make compared to what they made uh, 160 years ago. Everybody, we all understand that. So what we're, what we're saying is for intergenerational equity, we want people making $2.40 to cut down on their consumption, do a lot more investment, make all this stuff so that those of us making you know, 20 times that um, you know, can have a better life. I mean, I don't you know, thank them for doing it. I think my great-great-grandfather sacrificed plenty for me. You know, I don't want him to do more. You know, they were... I mean, I had ancestors dying from things that we could cure with a simple antibiotic tablet today. Um, all this sort of stuff didn't have running water, didn't have electricity. You know, why do we want them to sacrifice? The people making these social costs of carbon 1% discount, they, they can't imagine that the world 150 years from now would be so much better off that they can handle whatever this carbon stuff is going to do. You know, that's yeah, the your, other, yeah, the other thing is that I mean, I made the point before about freeing up time. That is this benefit that people don't value. Like the thing that benefits us from the past is all the time they, I mean, the wealth somewhat, but really the yeah. time for innovation. It's like, that's the knowledge of how to you know, cost effectively produce different kinds of values. That's right. what we care about. So let me ask one uh, final uh, question. I really sure. appreciate you going back and forth with me because I want to kind of talk I'm, about this with good, an good, economist good. and I have... Uh, I hope I've helped. <laughs> no, no, you've helped me uh, a lot. So one more thing is just what do you see the consequences of this going forward? And I want to, we'll try to lump together two things. So one is the Biden administration, but then also there is, in my view, an ominous trend of some of the energy groups, including API, American Petroleum Institute, looks like yeah. they're starting to support a carbon tax based on this fallacious social cost of carbon. What do you see as the, the trajectory 
the negative trajectory uh, of this. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I don't read minds. I have trouble figuring out what API is going to do. You know, the American Petroleum Institute, um, you know, who represent most of the, you know, the oil and natural gas producers uh, in the U.S., um, you know, they, they may be panicking over, you know, electric car mandates, figuring, well, we'll be better off with a carbon tax than electric car mandate, but they're going to get both if they push it. Um, there was also, when we looked at models, uh, at, when I worked at the Heritage Foundation, we, we did estimates using the Department of Energy's modeling system. Um, and this was, you know, six, seven years ago. And what happened when you put in a carbon tax initially was that the oil companies actually came out a little bit better. One, almost all of the carbon tax on gasoline and, and transportation fuels got shifted to the consumer because the demand is what we call so inelastic. Um, on the other hand, coal got slaughtered. And so the carbon tax killed coal, which was replaced by natural gas, which a lot of these integrated producers have gas as well as oil. <clears throat> so I think, you know, seven years ago, a carbon tax was actually profitable for these oil companies. So much of the coal fleet has, has been decimated already. I don't know if there's that, that gain yet to be had. But I, you know, they may be, there's this saying in DC, you know, if you're not at the table, you're what's for dinner. And so they want to go there and they want to say, okay, you know, they can come up with some carbon tax that maybe won't hurt them as much as some other regulations that they want to be a substitute. And by the way, I forgot to mention this. The economists assume with the social cost of carbon and, a, you know, using a carbon tax that, that matches that, that we get rid of all the other <laughs> regulations. Yeah. It's <laughs> so is, dishonest that they don't. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, Orrin Cass had this great, I think, great piece several years ago called the carbon tax shell game. I don't know if you've ever yeah. read that, but I thought that was. I may have. He deals with like every one of the rationalizations. But one point he makes is there's this, there's like this theoretical world that the economists are in where they say, oh, yeah, well, this is going to replace right. all these inefficient right, right, regulations. Right, 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 but right. in the real world, it's a supplement to them. It's is, is Biden going to repeal everything that doesn't meet the social cost of carbon? Like Keystone XL, that doesn't meet no. the social cost of carbon. Like none of his policies do no. electric cars. They're like the least efficient. So it's it's this combination of, but the economists still, and, and even the yes. the Republican groups cast shows, you know, they support it. So they'll be like, oh yeah, we demand this standard, but in practice, Nobody practices that standard, but they still support the carbon tax on top yeah. of the regulatory right, right, apparatus. Right. No, Schumer came out with the first time. Somebody, he said, oh, yeah, no, this carbon tax is great. Of course, we'll still need the regulations just to make sure you know, we get what we want. Um, the, the, you know, the, the, the economist who came up with these offsetting excise taxes and subsidies was a guy named Pigou. And so they call these Paguvian taxes. So the, the, you know, the carbon tax would be a Paguvian tax. And the, the line I, I, I like to use is that the carbon tax in D.C. has little to do with Pigou and a lot to do with pig out. So these people see this as a, as a revenue source, you know, and they, that's primarily. And, and you've told them, look, we have this revenue source that is actually virtuous. Well, what's, you know, they're not going to stop at whatever some economist comes up with because they'll find an economist to tell them a higher number so they can get even more money. So um, where it goes, you know, if, if I'm looking in a crystal ball, I'm, I'm a little bit scared. Uh, some of my colleagues say, well, no, it's so unpopular, they'll never vote it. But they've been pushing, they've been pushing, they've been pushing. I, I still think it will be a tough vote right now to say we want to raise your gasoline price 50 cents or a dollar a gallon. You know, if it's going to be a $50 carbon tax, that's, it's roughly nine cents or 10 cents 
for each $10 of a carbon tax on the price of gasoline. That'd be a, that's a rule of thumb that works pretty well. And you know, the same thing for heating oil, electricity. So the same percentage you know, increases. You know, do you want to, do you want to, you know, we, we saw what happened in Texas. Let's do a little bit of that. Is that what you're going to be happy with? They're going to make grandma just a little bit colder. Um, you're going to make it a little harder to drive, you know, all these sorts of things. Uh, I think in the past have proved unpopular. Um, and another concern is that uh, Biden simply declares a climate emergency. You know, they've been plowing that field for a long time, trying to get people to think it's, a, you know, it's an existential threat. It's not. 1.5 degrees was set in stone somewhere. That's just pulled totally out of the air, that carbon limit. I mean, the te temperature cap. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't surprise me if he declares a climate emergency and imposes a carbon tax. You know, the, nobody on the Hill wants to vote for it. They all want to get the money from it. So I, that's the one that scares me the most, you know, invocation of, you know, uh, executive power um, to come up with a revenue scheme that, you know, according to the constitution is supposed to originate in the house. All right, well, yeah, it is a very time, timely threat to discuss. I'm really grateful to you for coming on. Before we wrap up, uh, tell listeners where they can learn more about your work. Yeah, I'm at the Institute for Energy Research. So if you Google Institute for Energy Research, uh, it'll, it'll take you, I think it's instituteforenergyresearch.org. Um, you know, we have our blog there uh, and we're, we'd be happy to have it. It's a, it's a great group. It's a small group. I like to say we punch above our weight um, and uh, go ahead and find us. We learn what we can. Awesome. Oh, and you're on Twitter, right? Uh, yes, D.W. Kreutzer. How do you spell Kreutzer? Kreutzer is K-R-E-U. T-Z-E-R. All right, David, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Uh -huh. Thanks again to David Kreutzer for joining me. That was a, a really fun and cathartic conversation for me. I've been having a lot of these ideas about externalities and other things for years, and I'm still developing them. But I am quite confident that this whole externalities way of looking at things by modern economists is not only morally, but economically very problematic. And then certainly its application to the issue of CO2 is terrible. I would like at some point to, and I like this ability to just talk to economists. I would like to talk at some point to an economist like Richard Toll, somebody who's who's in this world. And I know he supports a carbon tax, but he seems like a reasonable guy, definitely a very smart guy. Uh, and you know, and talk to them, or even I hope that economists listening to this, uh, you know, anyone who agrees with me or disagrees with me, tell me because yeah, I want to I want to keep pushing on this. But it's it's this issue where there is a lot of methodological stuff going wrong. And so it's, it's a really good start today to talk to David and to get his take on it and to run my ideas by him and also just to learn all the things that he knows uh, about this. So appreciate that a lot. All right, big piece of news. Uh, it is Wednesday that I'm recording this. So Wednesday, March 3rd, and I am 100% on track to send my manuscript to the publisher on Thursday, March 4th, which is tomorrow. I'm just going to make a, like a couple of references and stuff like that. Uh, but I'm going to send them, you know, a whole new book and it'll take probably a month or two or three to edit and stuff. And so I'll still be making a lot of improvements, but in terms of getting the core thing together, which has taken me almost two and a half years 
that uh, that job is is done. So it's been very it's very exciting to have that. I'm really grateful to everybody for their support, and I'm particularly grateful to the accelerators. Uh, who those are the ones who support financially our research and development and our promotional efforts. It's allowed me to spend quite a lot of money on research and development and have some amazing research, amazing thinkers help me with this. And there's just no way it would be anywhere as near as good as it, as it is and will be without this support. So thanks so much to accelerators. And then going forward, uh, we're going to be able to make a lot of use of continuing accelerator contributions to promote the hell out of this thing. We're going to have another, you know, back back when Moral Case came out, we did a books for teachers and students thing. I'm going to replicate that as well, where people can, students and teachers at in uh, high schools and colleges can write in. And if they give us a reason why they really would like a free copy, then we can send one to them. We did a couple thousand of those. I hope we can do 10,000 plus, even 20,000 plus uh, for the launch of the new book. So that'll, we're not going to do that now, but we'll start rolling that out maybe in six months or seven months as we get close to the publication date, which will either be late this year or very early next year. So there's, there's that. But also now that I'm going to have some more time freed up, there's a lot more, I think, opportunity to do things like use online advertising to promote more of my ideas and also just to engage more publicly. So appreciate the accelerators. If you want to accelerate or accelerate again, you can go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. All right, let's see what else. Make sure you're on my mailing list, uh, alexepsteinlist.com. Make sure you're following what I'm doing on Twitter. I'm posting a lot of talking points there, twitter.com slash alexepstein. And then, of course, I am updating energytalkingpoints.com. And as of now, I have a whole bunch of things to put up there, which should be up there in the next week or two. So look out for that. Let me just see, is there anything else that I'm missing? Uh, I think we are good for this week. So as I, I enjoyed this episode, hope you enjoyed it as well. Feel free to send in suggestions. And as I like to say, as always, you can uh, write me with questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail to alex at alexepstein.com. All right, that is it for this week. Next week, I'll be back again, uh, considering a, a few different guests. One of these times soon, I'm going to bring on Stefan Henna, my amazing researcher who's been doing particularly amazing work. Uh, lately, we may do a segment, we may do a, uh, a show on Bill Gates' book. I haven't read it yet since I've been finishing my own book, uh, but I look forward to reading that soon. Uh, curious if any of you have insights on that book, uh, feel free to email me with those insights. And I think that that's an important book. It's, I won't fully prejudge it, but based on what he's been saying publicly, it looks like it's going to be a disappointment relative to him saying fairly rational things. Like in the past, he's talked a bunch about what I would call the unreliables and the shortcomings of those. I'm not into, he's always been pretty bad about just parroting climate disaster type thing. So that certainly doesn't seem to be improving. Uh, but he is, you know, he is good in terms of talking about energy as one of the most important things. It's going to be really interesting to see how it, it shapes up. Uh, and yeah, look, I think that's going to be, again, an important thing to talk about. All right, that's it for this week. I'll be back next week. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.